right, so uh, we finished uh, 1 Corinthians 9, and uh, we're just going to look at those last couple verses, because uh, chapter 10 um, is then continuing this thought. So uh, Jacob did a good job on Sunday, preached through chapter 9, and, and uh, so chapter 9 ends where Paul's saying, look, I don't want to run with uncertainty or just fight as one that, that beats the air. In other words, I, I'm not accomplishing what I want to accomplish, and he says that uh, he, he, it's like Paul has this fear, he says, that he doesn't want to become a castaway. He says, my fear is that like when I have preached to others, when I have preached to you, that I myself would be a castaway. Or, and, and what that word castaway means is not talking about that, that, that Paul would lose his salvation. But Paul's talking about to, that he would get to that point where he would be of, um, not of, of use for God that he would be disapproved, that he would be disqualified as far as rewards and opportunities. And that's kind of how chapter 9 ends. And now uh, chapter 10, he says, so moreover, brethren, he says, I, I would not that you would be ignorant. In other words, like, I don't want you to be, be uninformed. B because it was almost like he was, when he's writing to them, he's telling them like, don't, don't think that this is just, what I'm about to tell you is just some irrelevant illustration and story that has nothing to do with you. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. I don't want you to be uninformed that the very thing that I'm going to point to in the Old Testament that happened almost 1,500 years prior, don't think that this couldn't happen to you. And, and may I say the same thing to us, may we not be ignorant or uninformed in thinking that what happened with Israel in the wilderness or what happened here with this church at Corinth, that, that we as a church couldn't, couldn't fall into those same, those same problems. So he says, brethren, I, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers, so when he says fathers, he's referring to like their ancestors, their forefathers. He says that your fathers, again, he's referring to to Israel. So the, the church in Corinth had both Jew and Greek, both Jew and Gentile. And so for, for the Jews, it would literally be their forefathers um, to those that weren't Jews, but they're believers now in, in Christ. It would be um, in a spiritual sense. He's like, look back to God's covenant people, Israel. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning them. He's pointing back. He's doing an Old Testament example. He says that they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. So he's referring back to the time when Israel was guided by God in the wilderness. So they left Egypt and they passed through the Red Sea. What a miraculous, miraculous work. In fact, we today, when we're talking about miracles... That's a miracle that we almost always will bring up, the parting of the Red Sea. And the other scripture writers like David and Isaiah and other scripture writers pointed to that as well, about a, 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 a momentous, monumental time when God did a great miracle. So Paul's doing the same thing. He's saying your, your forefathers, he's pointing to them and he's saying that they were they, they passed through the sea, and then he says they were under the cloud. He's referring to God's guidance when they were in the wilderness. They had this cloud that, that, that they would follow. And this was symbolic, right, of, of God's protection and God's guidance and God's presence with them. 
And, and so he's pointing this out. He's saying, I don't want you to be uninformed about this. Remember your, your fathers. They were under the cloud. They passed through the sea. And verse 2, it says, and they were, they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So what he's saying is when they're baptized in Moses is he's saying they were identified and unified with their leader. That's what baptism is. Baptism is an identification. When we have baptisms here, and, and, uh, and this Sunday we're going to have two baptisms. Excited for that. And so when someone's baptized, they're just saying publicly, I am identifying as a follower of Christ. I'm identifying that I'm a believer of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. There's a unification then with Christ, not the actual act of baptism, right? It's by faith alone that we're saved, that we're joined together and united with Christ. But the baptism is that identification saying that we are in agreement or in unification with, with a message or with a leader. So he's saying you were, you were, you were uh, unified, the, the fa their forefathers, they were unified with their spiritual leader, Moses, and he says, and they did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and the rock and that rock was Christ. So now he's talking about the manna that came down from heaven. So when God's people, Israel, were in the wilderness, you see God's miraculous provision for them. And he brought manna down from heaven. This was angel's food, is what manna is. And they brought this, this bread down from heaven. And then when they were in the, the hot wilderness and they needed water, Moses, uh, God told Moses to strike a rock. And Moses struck the rock and it brought forth water. And Moses did it a second time when God told him, speak to the rock, don't hit the rock. And Moses, in anger, hit the rock. And this is symbolic. Because now Paul's saying this. He's saying like, that rock was Christ. That's a picture of Christ. And, and what was so significant about that is when Moses smote that rock, it's symbolic of Christ was smitten for us on the cross. And he died once for all. And when Moses hit that rock again uh, in, in anger, like God said, look, this, I'm displeased with this, Moses. But the, the, the point was, P Paul is pointing out to them an Old Testament example of all of these blessings and benefits that they had. That Israel had all of these blessings and benefits. They had God's presence, God's protection, God's provision. They had all of these things. But now he says this, verse 5. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. So it's almost like, do, do I have your attention now, Church of Corinth? So, don't think that what happened there couldn't happen to you. The God's covenant people, Israel, some 1,500 years ago in the wilderness, they had all of these blessings. They had God's provision, God's protection. They they had God bringing, providing for them. But he says, you know what? With all, God wasn't well pleased. God wasn't well pleased with many of them. In fact, that seems like an understatement that Paul's making. Because remember when, 
when they were about to go into the land that God had promised them. And they sent the spies, one from each of the, the, the 12 tribes. And it was only Joshua and Caleb that said, hey, we can, yeah, there's, we see the same thing that these guys see. But like, hey, our God has brought us to this point. But the people began to murmur and complain and acted in fear. And so because of that, God wasn't, he wasn't pleased with them. And then here's a really a sobering, sobering thing. And once again, I, I hope that, I really think the point that Paul is driving home to the church at Corinth is, don't think this couldn't happen to you. And may we also recognize the same thing. Don't think this couldn't happen to us. He's saying with many of them, God wasn't pleased. Now, I think you could make a, a very strong case, though, that who Paul is talking to at the church of Corinth is not those who are pretending to be believe, believers in art. I think he's talking to believers. Now, no doubt, maybe there's some, just like in any church, you can't see everyone's heart and you don't necessarily know who is all a follower of Christ. But, but I think the majority of these people were believers and just like in the Old Testament and He's saying, look, God wasn't pleased with them. Now, that's a sobering, should be a sobering thing. That we as believers in Christ, as a child of God, and by the way, like as a follower of Christ, as a child of God, aren't you glad that there's nothing that we can do to make God love us any less or any more? Amen? Like we are loved, we are, are chosen, we are in Christ. I, I, I love reading through Ephesians 1 that lists all the blessings and all the benefits of believers because of Jesus, you have these things. But here's what I believe that sometimes that, that, that we don't consider, um, it's called tota scriptura, or all of scripture, letting all of scripture speak. And when we let all of scripture speak, I don't think we find a contradiction. I think we find a harmonious, unified, balanced approach to some things like what we're going to talk about. Where, look, as a believer, you are loved, you are in Christ. Nothing can separate you from that. That, that you, are, you are going to, as a believer, that God's going to complete his work in you. In fact, in chapter 1 of Corinthians, remember, Paul reminds them of those truths. He's saying, God's not done with you. God's going to complete his work that he started in you. And as believers, we can rest in that, knowing we are loved, knowing that we're not going to be kicked out of the family of God, knowing that our salvation is not based on our performance or our works. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We're saved by his works. However, as believers, as believers, there's times in our life where we can do some things that are not pleasing to our heavenly father. We can live in a way, and maybe even for a season of time. Maybe even for a season of time. Now, again, I have to interject here, right? There's a really bad, there's a really, really bad teaching of when it comes to salvation of, well, you know, you just, you hold on to a prayer you said one time. But, but the only problem with that is that, that sometimes I've heard people say that. It's like they have this confidence and this assurance. Oh, I said this prayer but, but there's never been a new, a, a, a change in their life, right? They're not a new creation in Christ Jesus. And, and uh, e even uh, uh, today at, at uh, North High School, I was doing, leading a Bible study and we were, they wanted to go through the book of James. So we were in, we were in James 2 today. And, and we were talking about 
uh, faith, dead faith versus real faith. And James is saying, look, genuine faith produces works, right? Genuine faith produces works. Like, don't say you have faith if you don't have works. It just, it, it's not that you're saved by your works. He's just saying true faith will always accompany works. And I, we say amen to that, right? That's true. But it's also true that as a believer, that we can sometimes live in a way that may not be pleasing to our Heavenly Father. And it's not about a loss of salvation. I think when Paul's talking about this and even talking about his fear of being what he says is a castaway, he's talking about not a loss of relationship or a loss of salvation, but a loss of rewards and a loss of opportunities which really goes right along with what Jacob was preaching about from chapter 9. He's carrying this thought over by giving them an example. By giving them an example. He says, with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And again, it was their, their lack of faith when they were going to go in and inherit the land. And they didn't believe God. It says, now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So he's saying, this is an example that you shouldn't follow. Don't make this same mistake is what Paul is telling the church at Corinth. He's like, don't lust after evil things. Neither be idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat, to drink, and they rose up to play. So he, he's referring to the time, remember when Moses, and this is back in, uh, in, in, in the Old Testament, where Moses would go up, when he went up to, uh, to the mountain to commune with God and to get the commandments from God. And, and, and Aaron was leading the people in like this, this idol worship of a golden calf. There was all kinds of sin and immorality going on. And it's like, man, God, it's like, did you not, did you guys not just see all these things God did for you? And yet they're worshiping idols. And he's saying like, look, don't, don't be tempted with evil like your forefathers. How that they were, they lusted after evil things and they were worshiped. They were involved in idol worship. Well, in, in just a few verses here, just a few verses here, Paul is going to, Talk to the church at Corinth about why are you who are now believers and followers of Christ still involved in these pagan and in idol worship at these, these, these big feasts where you go and there's worship of, of idols going on. Why are you a part of that? God saved you out of that. So again, he's pointing out like, don't, don't think this couldn't happen to you, church. He says, don't be idolaters as some of them were. Verse 8, he says, neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and 20,000. So 23,000 people were, were killed. And this is a time he's referring back to when, um, when the, the uh, children of Israel, when the, the, some of the men were seduced by the daughters of Moab and they were engaging in sexual sin with them and, and God and God smote 23,000 of them. This is a time when uh, Balaam wouldn't curse God's people. Um, and Balaam said to the king of Balak of Moab, hey, just have your women go and seduce the children of Israel. And that's what happened. So, I, look, I, I must point this out. And we actually have a little bit of time so we can go down this rabbit hole a little bit. 
a passage like this, and this verse in particular, can pose as some problems, right? There's two problems. One is this. One is it, it seems like, and it's not only this, there's other instances like this where, where we may read this or people may read this and think like, wow, what an angry, harsh God. I mean, he kills 23,000 people like in this plague in one day. It's like, whoa, like what, what's going on here? And, and again, I think that there's many misunderstandings when we object to things like that. One thing that's important to note is this was God's covenant people, Israel. And they were the ones who the word of God was going to come through. They were the ones who the Messiah was going to come through. They were, I like how Pastor Howard put it a few years ago, and we were talking through some of this, that they were protectors of the kingdom, right? And so this was a unique time in history. I'm not, I'm not proposing that it's a different God in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. I'm simply pointing out this was a unique time in history in the nation of Israel where God had warned them about some of these things and not going after and not doing these things. And so you see some of these harsh penalties or these harsh actions by God and you think, whoa, that's a little bit over the top. But I, I would propose to you, okay, this is a unique time, but also I would propose that I don't think that we really truly take the holiness of God that serious. And that's why it seems like, oh man, what a harsh penalty. Another thing I would point out to maybe the skeptic or unbeliever who has a problem with some of these things or has a problem when you see things like the flood, God wiping out almost all of mankind except for eight people, or when God you know, sends fire down from heaven and, and, and consumes people, or, or how about Elisha the prophet where he calls these bears out and, and, and eats these, like, probably this teenage gang that's mocking the man of God. And so you, you see, you read some of those things and you think, man, that's harsh. Like, how do we reconcile that with a loving God? And, and I would, I guess, pose that question back with, well, it seems like people are always complaining, why doesn't God do something about the problem of evil? But then in unique situations, God actually does something about the evil and people complain. And I think that it's important we understand a context here, right? There's a certain context here. This is a unique time with God's covenant people. That, he, that, that these people must be preserved so that, that the word of God and the Messiah, the, where the, the line of where the Messiah would come from. But also there's another problem with this verse. And I, I'll bring this up. It would be really easy to not bring it up. It would be really easy to just let's read on. But here's the thing. When you come to things that are supposed or alleged contradictions in scripture, the worst thing that you can do for you personally or for your children, for our young people that we've called to disciple and walk, walk beside them in their faith, the worst thing we can do is try to brush over it. Because I promise you, those things will come up to them, but they will come up in a context of unbelief, not belief. And so we have to talk about these things, right? We, we have to address these things. I'm not saying every single sermon, you know, has to be an apologetic of we're always on the defense of our faith. But, but we have to know these things and we have to be prepared to give answers for these things. So here's what the issue is. The issue is that Paul says, well... 
that um, verse number eight, neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day, 23,000, 23,000. Well, here's what the issue is. As we go back and see in Numbers chapter 25, Numbers says it was 24,000 that died in this plague. It was like, whoa, well, well, which one is it? Is there an error? Is there, is there a, a discrepancy here? And so when it comes to contradictions, or I should say alleged contradictions in the word of God, um, it's important to know this, that the vast majority of alleged contradictions are someone simply not understanding the context or, or someone just uh, simply misrepresenting something. And many of them, are extremely easy with just a minimal amount of research are, are very easy to overcome. But I got to be honest, there's some that aren't so easy. There's some that are, that are a little more challenging that I personally have found when, when I come to those, it's the more that I dive into it and the more that I just really follow the truth wherever it leads, the more I find that, like, personally, I've always found a satisfactory answer for the alleged contradictions. But I'm not going to pretend for one minute that there aren't some challenging ones. Again, I would say the vast majority of alleged contradictions is just many times just a simple misunderstanding of a context. And it's easy to reconcile when you take all of Scripture when it comes to the Gospels, right, there's multiple accounts, and they're not in contradictory to each other, is certain writers are emphasizing certain things. But I will say this, even within the Gospels, some of those, it's like, whoa, it's not, doesn't seem like they're just emphasizing certain things. It seems like there's a contradiction that's really, really hard to reconcile. And what I'm saying is this, we need to dive into those. Don't just ignore it and think, and, and think that I'm just not going to worry about it, right? Because, again, what, what will happen is then that doubt will creep in, right? Follow the truth wherever it leads. And especially when it comes to our kids or our grandkids or young people who are helping walk along and, and disciple, the worst thing we can do is, oh, let's not tell them about this problem. No, let's talk about it. And let's talk about it in a context of faith. And let's be completely honest. And again, I would say that the word of God, when you look at it, the amazing unity and harmony, the amazing, um, the, the fulfilled prophecy and so many things that come together, you see that didn't come from the mind of man. That came from the mind of God. When you have 40 authors on three different continents over the span of 1500 years, and yet you have such unity of the Bible, I would say that's significant. I would say that's rather miraculous. And also, I would say, as, as believers, we need to defend something called the inerrancy of Scripture. So many people are caving on the inerrancy of Scripture. And what that means is this, that we believe that the Scripture, it is, yes, inspired, it's God-breathed, but we're saying it is without error. And many people are caving on this. And the reason why is they don't want to have to deal with every alleged contradiction that they find in the word of God, right? Like they're just like, they think, man, it's not a hill we want to die on. And, and even honestly, even some really good apologists have just said, we're not going to die on that hill. We're going to say it's historically accurate. There's good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. 
And if, if Jesus resurrected from the dead, Christianity's true. We don't have to defend inerrancy of Scripture. Again, I can kind of see their point, I, but, but personally, I, I think we need to defend the inerrancy of Scripture because I think it's going to pose a whole lot of problems in other areas as we give ground and say, well, maybe, the, maybe, maybe they got it wrong on this one. I think we need to defend inerrancy of Scripture. So all that to say, that's a long rabbit hole, right? Uh, but I will say this. This is one of those, honestly, it's a little bit tough. It's, it's a little bit tough. You know, because it seems like what is happening is Paul's saying, hey, in one day there were 23,000 that died, whereas it was 24,000 over the whole plague, and it may have lasted a little bit longer. Now, say, I don't know, that doesn't really, that sounds like special pleading here. I don't know if, that, if, if that's a satisfactory answer, and I would say, I don't know either. Um, there's also another possibility. That it is more of a translation issue. Pastor Howard would know more about this, but like with in Hebrew, with, with some of the letters and or with some of like how that they would use certain letters for numbers and in and, and the way like some have suggested that might be what's going on here. And again, because of um, all of the manuscripts that we have and you can compare multiple manuscripts, I think we can come away with what God actually communicated for his people. But I will say this, that's one of those, it's a tough one. I don't know that I know the exact answer. And, and for some, that might, be un, that might be really unsettling. But I think that there is a good answer. I don't know that I know exactly what that answer is. But I will say this, when we dive into those difficult things and we don't run away from it, we dive into some of those alleged contradictions, I think what we'll find is that we'll, we'll have a satisfactory answer. That we'll see, wow, it's going to strengthen our faith, not shatter our faith. So, all right. That was a long rabbit, uh, <laughs> rabbit trail. Let's move on. He says, verse number, verse number nine, neither let us tempt Christ as some of those also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. So this is a time they're complaining. And so God sent serpents out and, 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 and they were being bitten by these poisonous serpents. And then Moses lifted up this, this serpent on the pole and said, look, look and live. And this is actually, Jesus is quoting this in, in, in uh, John chapter 3. Jesus is, is quoting this to Nicodemus and talking about how this is a picture of, of, of the Messiah, of the, Jesus, the Son of God, who would be lifted up on a cross. And he's pointing out that, that parallel. But he's saying, look, that God's people, Israel, here's the point, back to the point Paul's making. They were blessed. They had God's provision and God's presence. They had all of these blessings. But he said, God was displeased with many of them. He was displeased with many of them because they gave in to idols and they lusted after evil things. They committed fornication. They complained and were murmuring. Now, verse 11, he says that all these things happen unto them for examples. He says they're written for our admonition or our warning upon whom the ends of the world are come. Now he says this, wherefore, okay, after all of this, hey, Israel, your forefathers, man, they had all these blessings. They had all of these provisions. But yet, you know what? God wasn't pleased with many of them. And he says, so therefore, wherefore, 
Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. He's saying, don't think this couldn't happen to you. Don't think that you're above this. Don't think that, you know what, hey, I'm doing okay and I have all these blessings. I mean, I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. And, and, you know, then I can just coast. He's saying, no, like, don't think that you couldn't make the same mistakes. And I say this to us as a church. If we think that we stand, we better be humble. Take heed lest we fall. Again, we're not talking about earning God's grace or God's favor. I mean, grace is that old definition of grace is God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. But we're talking about our effectiveness for God. I think that's what Paul's talking about. He's like, I, I don't want to when I preach to others, but I myself be a castaway or I myself be at the point where I'm, I'm not used like how God intended to use me. And he says, therefore, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. He's saying, listen, temptation's going to come. Don't think that you're, that you're above it. Don't think the same thing couldn't happen to you. Don't think you couldn't make the same mistakes. But then he ends that, that thought with a positive note. He says, look, whatever temptation comes, God's going to make a way for you to escape. You, you don't have to give in to temptation. You might be tempted. You might be tempted strongly, but you don't have to give in to that temptation. God will always make a way to escape. May I just say this, no matter how strong that appeal is and how, how, how pleasurable sin looks and how it might seem at times like it's so hard to not give in. No, God always makes a way to escape. There is a way to overcome that temptation, not in our own strength, but through Christ, through the spirit of God in you, through the word of God that we have in our minds and our hearts. No temptation has taken you, but it's common to man. Hey, people, other people have faced these same temptations. Now, beware lest you fall, right? But God's made a way to escape. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, he says, flee from idolatry. Remember a couple chapters back when Paul's warning about the dangers of sexual immorality. He says, run from it. Run from it. Don't flirt with it. Don't see how close you can get to it. Run away from it. He says the same thing when it comes to idolatry. He says, run away from it. Now, it makes sense because now he's going to go in and talk about how that, look, some of the, the church at Corinth, they were involved still in some of these pagan feasts with idol worship. Paul's saying, run away from this. Don't be a part of this. God has called you out of this. So verse 15, he says, I speak as to wise men. Judge you what I say. He's like, if you're wise, consider what I'm saying. Verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless is not the or is is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread in one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh are, are not they which did eat and sacrifice, partakers of the altar? What say I then? That the idol is anything, or that which is offered to sacrifice to the idols is, is anything. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. 
and I would not that you should have fellowship with the devils. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You can't be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So we're actually going to refer back to these on Sunday. Because Sunday we're in chapter 11. We're going to have communion. We're going to talk about why we do the Lord's Supper. And, and what, it rem what, what we're to, to be reminded of when we do the Lord's Supper as a church. And I hope it'll be a beautiful time and an encouraging time uh, for us as, as a church as we reflect on that and look at that from 1 Corinthians 11. But basically what he's saying here is this, like, look, you're, you're partaking in the Lord's Supper, but you're also wanting to still partake in these pagan feasts where there's idol worship. Now, he pointed out, and he's going to even point out again about Christian liberty, right? He's saying, look, an idol's nothing. You know, don't, don't, don't stress about the meat offered to idols. Like, I mean, the idols aren't real. And the, he's going to say in a few moments, the earth is the Lord's. It all belongs to him. But he is warning about how that, like, you can be associated in a way that is demonic when it comes to idol worship. When it comes to the meat offered to idols, like, hey, you, don't stress in, like, asking, like, you know, doing all this investigation. Was this meat offered to idols? And, it, hey, you know what? Don't stress about that. But this is different. They were going to these pagan feasts and part, partaking in these sinful activities of idol worship. And just, and historically we know there was just any immorality that you could imagine was going on. This big uh, drunken party where they're worshiping idols. And Paul's saying, look. Look, this is associated with demonic things when we're, we're, we're knowingly worshiping idols. He's saying, how can you come to the congregation and gather and partake of the Lord's Supper and still think you can be associated with these pagan feasts where there's idol, known idol worship? He's saying, run away from this. Run away from idolatry. We'll talk more about those verses Sunday. You still got to come because we're going to cover other stuff as well. So now he's going to talk about, okay, so don't, don't be involved in these pagan worships and in, in the, the, the idol worship that's going on at the temple of Serapis and these other gods that they're sacrificing to. But now he's going to talk some more about something called Christian liberty, right? He's been hammering this. He's been hammering this because we've been talking about it several times in in corinthians and again it's almost like you can just kind of imagine he's like you know he's writing this letter you know and he's he's right of course under the inspiration of the holy spirit guiding him but it's you know in his own personality though in his own writing and or the the scribe that he had writing it for him that he was dictating to but it's like you know he's talking about christian liberty and he's been talking about something else like, oh, let's talk about that christian liberty again you guys have a problem with this let's talk about this again so now he says, look, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. Remember, we talked about that word expedient just means helpful or profitable. He's saying just because something is lawful doesn't mean that it's helpful. Doesn't mean that it's necessary. He's like, all things are lawful for me, but all things don't edify. Like all, all things aren't building me up or building others up. Just because you can do it doesn't mean that you should. He's like, let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. 
Now, wealth, it's more talking about just well-being in general, not necessarily restricted to only money. But he's saying, look, don't, don't just seek about your own well-being. Be considerate of others. So again, in Christian liberty, you know, hey, if, if something's lawful, and, and by the way, that should be the first question. Because sometimes, I don't know if you've seen this, um, it's easy, to, it's easy to, 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 have, to have happen or to witness where, you know, maybe you're having a conversation or somebody's having a conversation about Christian liberty, right? About something that isn't super clear in scripture. And then somebody kind of jumps in halfway into the debate or discussion and they don't really understand what the argument is. And they're like, well, I just think as a Christian, we can do anything. Like, I said, well, no, that's actually not the argument we're making, right? Because the word of God actually says that there's things we shouldn't do as believers. And so those are things that are not really up for a debate. It's not a debate. It's like it's settled. God, God's word says it, right? So those things we need to ask ourselves, okay, is it, is it lawful? What does the word of God say? What does the word of God say? That's a good place to start. Amen. Like that's our authority as, as Baptists. When we talk about in our foundation class, like our Baptist distinctives or what our core beliefs are, that's one of the things we always talk about. And again, I know it, other people other than Baptists hold to this as well, but that's something as Baptists, that's a core belief of, and that is the, the biblical authority, right? It's like the Bible's authority trumps all other authority. So ask yourself that question, right? What does the word of God say? is a good place to start. But just because we're allowed to do something, just because we have the liberty to do something, it's not always wise to do. It's not always helpful to do. And sometimes it can be unhelpful to us or to someone else or to someone else. And Pastor Larry used the illustration about, you know, if you know something is offensive to someone, you know, honor that. Again, it doesn't mean you have to like, you know, be dishonest about it and you have to like, you know, oh, well, I wonder if somebody here might be offended. At, like, that's not the point that Paul's making. It's like if you know somebody's offended at something, you know something's offensive to somebody and, and he's saying like, hey, you might have liberty. Maybe the Bible doesn't forbid you to do it, but if you're going to be with them and around them and uh, honor them, I think is the point that he's trying to make, Right. Be honoring to them. Maybe you don't think that it's wrong, but if they do, you're going to be with them. Just be respectful of that. Um, again, which is something we've been hammering, so we won't talk about it too much. So let no, let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat asking no question for conscience sake. So what is the shambles? They're just talking about the, the meat market, right? The, the, the marketplace. It's like, hey, you go and buy meat. You know, you don't have to like question everybody. Where did this come from? Was this offered to idols? It's like, just buy the meat. Like you don't have to ask a bunch of questions. Don't ask. Uh, and he says, um, ask no question for conscience sake. For hey, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God, it's all from God. God owns it all, right? And he says, if any of them that believe not bid you to a feast and you be disposed to go where you want to go. So if someone's asking, you're not talking about like this, you know, drunken idol worship feast. Paul wouldn't contradict himself in just a matter of verses, right? He's talking about, look, if somebody invites you to a party, somebody invites you over, and he's like, if you're, um, it uses the phrase disposed to go, it basically means if you want to go, okay? So good news for you introverts. You don't have to go. If you don't want to go, don't go. But like, if you want to go, he's like, you know, whatever is set before you, eat it. And don't ask any questions for conscience sake. So if you're going to an unbeliever's house or their party, 
and they put the food before you, he's like, you know, you don't have to grill them and question them. Where, where did you get this? Was this, you bought this in the market? Was this offered to idols? Like, you don't have to ask a bunch of questions about it. Just eat it, right? But he says, but if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it to you or for the conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. So what he's saying here is this, look, if you're with an unbeliever, they invite you over and you go and you have a meal with them. You don't have to ask a bunch of questions about where did this come from now? But if they bring it up, they're like, this was offered to idols. This was involved in idol worship. And for them, you think, oh, if I eat this again for you, it wouldn't be associated with worshiping of idols. But if it's in their mind going to associate you with worshiping idols, if they're asking in a way that seems like, oh, like they're going to think that I'm okay with idol worship. Again, this is a specific instance. This isn't just you're going on your own to the marketplace, you're buying meat. This is when you're sitting down with them to eat. Right, so again, I think these are just good principles for us. It's hard to really compare. I think, Pastor Howard, we were talking the other day about it. It's hard to really find a, a good modern-day comparison of, you know, meat offered to idols. But it, it would be like, you know, if, 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 if something were to come up where you know, ooh, like an unbeliever is going to think that, that I'm okay with, with, with doing something that is involved with idols, like, I don't want to give the wrong impression. I think that's what Paul's saying here, like, if they bring it up, then that would be the time to say, you know what, I'm not, I'm going to refrain from eating that because I worship God and God alone, right? So I think these are just, these are our principles for us to live by. So he says, conscience, I say not thine own, but for the other. And why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? Verse 31, wherefore, whether ye eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do to the glory of God. Here's an uh, awesome principle. A lot of times, myself included, like I'll quote this verse without before having like really understood the context. But I think when you understand the context, it makes that verse even more powerful. Like, hey, whatever we do, make sure we're doing it for the glory of God. You know, hey, tr try to try to follow your conscience, right? Try to follow what God's leading you to do. Try to be respectful of others. Like, that's important. But ultimately, whatever you do, he's saying, make sure you're doing it to the honor and glory of God. Live your life that way. And wow, what an amazing thing that would be if we would truly live our, our life and ask, is this bringing glory to God? Is this bringing honor and glory to God? Can I ask God to bless this? But man, we see that all the time, don't we? Where people are like, you know, basically saying, thank God for this blessing, but it's something that is pulling them away from God. They're asking God to bless something that's contrary to what God says in his word. They're asking God to bless a relationship that God has cursed because God says that, 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 that believers shouldn't marry unbelievers and be un, unequally yoked. Again, we talked about that few chapters back, we're not saying if, if you became a believer and you're with a non-believer that you should separate. In fact, Paul says, no, you need to stay married. And it's by your testimony, they're going to come to Christ. But, but what I see, and you do too, we see so often, like we want to do things 
But God says, look, that's not glorifying to me. He says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jew, nor to the Gentile, nor to the church of God. So he's like, try not to be offensive. Now, again, we're not talking about, you know, walking on eggshells and, and always just being obsessed with, oh, is there someone that could be offended at this? Again, the context here, it's like, if you know something's offensive to someone, try not to give offense to them. Try not to pick a fight if, they're, if the fight doesn't need to be had. And he says, verse 33, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. So again, Paul is known, like if, if, you, if you read the books that, that Paul wrote, you know, Paul's a godly troublemaker. I mean, it's either, you know, revival or a riot when Paul comes to town. Sometimes it's both. I mean, Paul would get beat up, thrown out of town. Paul's causing all this trouble because of his boldness to tell the truth. But yet, I think we see a balance here. I think when it comes to something that is clear, like right and wrong, let's be bold. Let's, let's pray that God will give us that boldness, like Paul. But I think what Paul's saying, look, when it comes to things that you know, aren't black and white when it comes to just a matter of preference, when it comes to, look, try to prefer other people. Now, ultimately, let's do it to the glory of God, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. Do it for God's glory. But he's saying, look, like, don't try to be offensive. And especially here when he's talking with even like the times when they, when, you know, if, if, if the church here at Corinth's going to gather with unbelievers and he's like, keep in mind, Keep in mind, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. In other words, low conduct in Christian living is a low regard for lost souls. And may we be reminded of that. When it comes to unbelievers, you know, maybe you could win this argument or debate with them. But, but the question is this, is it, is it a debate that you even want to have? Is it something that is going to open up a door, close a door. Again, you need to ask yourself that. You need to pray, like, what, what, is God, what is God leading me to do? What's the Spirit of God leading me to do? Is there a time to take a stand? Absolutely. Is there a time to take a stand regardless of the consequences? Absolutely. Are there other times, are there other times, though, that it's just wise to just prefer someone else? And it's not a huge deal. It's not even maybe necessarily a right or wrong thing or biblical or, or unbiblical. It's just a matter of, okay, can I, just, can I just keep my mouth shut? Maybe in some context, right? I mean, you've ever been there. It's like, oh man, like I have a really good thing to say. But it might just be more profitable for the sake of someone that doesn't know the Lord to just prefer them right? To, to, to not be offensive to them if I don't have to bring this up. Because how we live and how we treat people, it really does matter. How we conduct ourselves as Christians really does matter. And Paul's saying, look, I'm not seeking my own profit. Not just seeking what I can get, what I can gain, but the profit of many that they may be saved.